Amen. Thank you, Andrew and Garrett, Jacob, Ryan. Appreciate you guys leading us in worship and uh, filling in for Kerry Wilson today. He was able to teach our adult uh, Sunday school class this morning. And if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen. It was an excellent uh, explanation of the Lord's Supper and baptism, those things that help us focus on Christ, the one who deserves all glory, the one to whom we are looking this morning. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we prepare to open God's word together? Lord, we do desire that this morning all the glory would go to Christ. Lord, we know that every day of the year that is at all points to be our greatest priority, that you would be honored, that you'd be treasured, that you would be loved, that you would be trusted, that you would be obeyed, that you would be feared, that you would be proclaimed. Lord, you deserve all the glory today, and I pray that as we consider the birth of our Messiah, as we consider the meaning of Christmas, that all the glory would go to Christ. So, Lord, fix our eyes on your son Jesus this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, I recently finished uh, preaching through the book of Exodus. It took us a little over a year and a half And I think in the last message from Exodus, we covered five chapters. Today, we're going to look at one verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's Christmas time, and it's worth our consideration to think, how should we understand the birth of Jesus? How should we think about it? What language should we use to describe the good news that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? I think this good news of what Jesus has done for us is summarized concisely, powerfully, beautifully in this single verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It's in the middle of a longer section. If you read chapter 8 and chapter 9 in its entirety, you'll find that the Apostle Paul is teaching the believers at the church in Corinth, teaching them about giving, teaching them about generosity, urging them to, to open their hearts to meet the needs of their fellow believers who were in need. And in the middle of this very practical section, talking about the the ethics of being a believer, we're given a description of the good news, a description of exactly what happened when the Son of God came to earth. It's a description that shines light on our need, our spiritual condition as sinners apart from Christ. It's a description of what Jesus has done to provide for us. Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. And it says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In the middle of this larger, very practical section that's full of exhortation to the church as to what we are to do and how we are to love and and how our faith is to be expressed, we find this theological jewel, a, a profound statement that I believe this morning deserves our extended meditation. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know this story. You know what Jesus did. You know the good news. You know the gospel. You know that Jesus was born as a baby, that he took on flesh, that he lived a perfect life, and that he died on the cross as a substitute for sinners 
and rose again. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, my aim this morning, I'll make clear. My aim this morning is to preach the gospel to you. Not because you don't know it. Not because you don't believe. Many of you here today do. But because we are never beyond our need to rehearse the good news. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He wants to remind them. In 1 Timothy chapter 1.15, he writes to Timothy and urges him. He says, remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel. Why is it that we need to be reminded? Why is it that we have to be told to remember? I think it's pretty simple. It's because we're prone to forget. We're prone to forget. We are prone, even in the church, even as believers, we're prone to assume the gospel thinking, oh yeah, everybody already knows that. I've already learned those things. We're prone to move past the gospel, to meditate and to focus and to study and to contemplate other things and move on from the cross. We're prone to take the gospel for granted. We can easily neglect to set our eyes on Jesus Christ and to consider what he has done for us. And there are many ways in which we're helpfully reminded of this gospel. We see it pictured, as we learned this morning, in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. We hear about the gospel in good songs and faithful sermons. But I also think Christmas can help us here. Although there's a lot of cultural trappings that add a lot of noise to the true meaning of Christmas... Christmas is really about the gospel. The message of Christmas is that God is working to bring salvation to a world that is cursed, a world that is broken, a world that is under the weight of sin and death. It's the good news that God has not forgotten his creation, that God has not given up on his people That God has a plan. He has a purpose to demonstrate his love and his grace and to bring about salvation. And he does it through the birth of a baby in Bethlehem. A baby whose name is Jesus, who was the son of God. Jesus came to fulfill God's promises to save his people from their sins. So the birth of Jesus is profoundly good news. It is gospel. This is why the angels sang, glory to God in the highest. This is why the Magi came from miles away. They came to worship. This is why the shepherds rejoiced and they went and told the whole town of what the angels had told them and of what they had seen in this newborn baby. This is why Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. Because the gospel is good news. What God was doing in sending his son is good news. Christmas is a celebration of God's grace to us in Christ. And that's precisely what Paul reminds the Corinthians about in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to do this morning is unpack this brief text and consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But before we sort of look at this in sort of a systematic sense, we have to understand what grace is and what grace means. Paul writes, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But do we? 
Do we know what grace is? Do we understand God's grace? And we could do a word study on this. We could look at how grace is displayed in Scripture. We could take some theological explanations. But if we boil it all down, this word grace that we use so commonly, that perhaps we forget what it means, if we were to boil it all down, I think it means this, that grace is divine favor given freely to the undeserving, and it comes from the heart of God himself. It is divine favor. This is, this is God's provision. This is the smile of God, the blessing of God. It is favor that is given freely. It's not purchased. It's not earned. And it's given to the undeserving. Those that you would think would be the last people to be recipients of such favor. And it comes from the heart of God himself. If I could remind you of the book of Exodus, because it's on my mind, I can't help it. In Exodus chapter 34... If you remember the story, God's glory, he passes before Moses and he announces his name, the Lord, the Lord. And the first thing he says about himself, a God merciful and what? Gracious. This grace comes directly from the heart, from the essence of God himself. He is a God of grace. The grace of God is seen in the goodness of his creation. We see God's goodness in the things that he has made. We see God's grace in his provision of the covenants throughout history. As he rescues his people, as he meets their needs, as he draws near to them to, to, to give himself to them, forgiving sin. But we see this grace most powerfully displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the apostle writes that the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And here's what John says about Jesus. Here's what John says about the word. Here's what John says about this glory. Full of grace and truth. In verse 16, he says, From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This divine favor that is given freely to the undeserving, that comes from the heart of God. It is experienced most fully and perfectly in Jesus Christ, in whom is grace and truth. And from his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. It is this grace, this divine favor, given freely to the undeserving through Christ. That is what is squarely in view here in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What I'd like to do this morning is look at three ways in which this grace is displayed in the coming of Jesus. Number one, this grace is displayed in shocking humility. When Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's reminding them about the shocking humility of Jesus. Now, to understand this humility, I want you to notice how Paul describes our Savior. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just our Lord, not just Jesus Not just Christ, the Messiah. He he stacks all of these titles and names together to give this regal description, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think the Christmas story, it's easy for us to think of 
Christmas as sort of a heartwarming, sentimental story. A story about the birth of baby Jesus in the manger and the moms and the girls like to hold babies and it's cute. But really the story of Christmas is scandalous. It should shock us. Absolutely shock us. It borders on unthinkable to see this baby in the manger and then realize who this child actually is. That he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord Upon him is the name that is above every name. He is fully divine. He is God in the flesh. No one else can be called Lord except him. His name Jesus signifies that he is the man, the one who was the teacher, the one who fulfilled the law as a man, the one who suffered as our Savior. The name Jesus, as the angel told Mary, was because he would save his people from their sins. It comes from the the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. It's just the, the Greek form of that. And it means that Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. That's what Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus means. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. He is the Lord. He is Jesus. But he is also the Christ. The Christ means the king. He is the anointed one the Messiah, the promised servant of God, the son of David who was destined to sit on the throne, the one who would reign with absolute and total authority. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who has shown us this grace. And when we consider who he is, his humility becomes shocking to us. When we realize who this baby is, we begin to understand what is meant when the apostle says, Though he was rich. What does he have in mind? What does he mean that the Lord Jesus Christ was rich? What Paul has in mind, what the Holy Spirit intends us to understand through his words, is so much more than merely material wealth. By the world's standards, we have a mix of people in the room. Some that we would call poor, some that we would call middle class, some that we would call rich. But Paul's not trying to talk about economic standing. That's not what he means here by rich. We have to ask the question, in what way was Christ rich? I want us to think about this, meditate upon this. Think about it. Jesus was rich, first of all, in glory. To be rich is to have an abundance. It's to have it all, right? And Jesus was rich in glory. In John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus prays, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Consider that. The baby in the manger had glory with the Father before the world existed. Jesus is more than a man. He is the second person of the triune Godhead who enjoyed perfect fellowship with his Father, perfect fellowship with the Spirit in this triune harmony. Existing with no need, before anything was made, enjoying abundant, infinite glory. Jesus was rich in glory. Colossians 2.9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Can you have more than having all of God? Can you be richer than that? No. And in him the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. Jesus is God. He is fully divine. He possesses all the glory of God because he is God. 
Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is rich in glory. Jesus was also rich in power. Think about that. That Jesus, though he was rich, so go back before the birth of Christ. Consider he had no lack, no shortage, no limit to his sovereign strength. He had it all. You cannot be stronger than God. You cannot have more strength than God. And Jesus had all of it. He was rich in glory, rich in strength. He was rich in terms of his position. All authority belongs to Christ. The blessing of the Father, the perfect approval of his Father belonged to Christ. He was the owner of everything in the creation because Jesus is the agent of creation. He's the one who made all things. It all belongs to him. So Jesus is rich in his position. Think about it this way. Jesus was rich in his perfections. As God, Jesus possesses every divine attribute. Rich in love, rich in mercy, rich in holiness, rich in wisdom, rich in knowledge, rich in his faithfulness, rich in his righteousness. Jesus was rich in his perfections. And then finally, Jesus was rich in the sense of his worthiness of worship and adoration. Jesus was the one of whom the angels had sang since the moment of their creation. When the angels showed up to the shepherds and sang glory to God in the highest, when they were worshiping, that wasn't the first time they had exulted in the glory of Christ. They were just doing on earth what they've always been doing in heaven. Jesus has it all. All glory, all worship, all praise, all adoration is his. Jesus was infinitely rich. And we could go on and on. So Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then get this, that though he was rich, having everything, yet for your sake he became poor. He became poor. What does it mean that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, became poor? Well, since his wealth was more than just material wealth, We need to understand his poverty as being more than just material lack. Yes, it's true that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Jesus traveled and he preached and he did miracles and he was just dependent on handouts. Other people had to give him a place to stay or else he had to camp out. While it's true that he was a carpenter, um, he was not somebody who was on the wealthy end of the spectrum. When Paul says that Jesus became poor, He's not just talking about money. Think about the loss of all of those things that made him rich. We find this definition of becoming poor in Philippians chapter 2. And Stephen, I'm going to try not to steal your thunder because you're preaching through Philippians. But in Philippians chapter 2 verse 6, it gives us this stunning description of the humility of Christ. It says that though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning that all of his riches, all of his glory, his position, his status, he did not selfishly hold on to that. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. That's what it means. That Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. Jesus set aside the unfathomable glory of heaven. He set it aside to come here. He humbled himself by taking on human flesh, though in him the fullness of God dwells bodily, though he's the perfect imprint of the exact image of God. This is subtraction by addition. He adds human nature, and the eternal God became a mortal man. The king of glory became a man of dust. The infinite power of Christ was now limited to human weakness. His infinite self-sufficiency was exchanged for human neediness. And all the worship of heaven that had been his was traded in for what Isaiah 53 describes. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's the humility of Christ. That's what it means that he became poor. The humility of the incarnation is displayed even further in the humility of his earthly ministry. Jesus washed people's feet. Jesus touched the unclean, like the lepers of society. Jesus ate with the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. What a far cry from the glory he had with the Father from the beginning. He became poor. But this humility becomes even more shocking when we consider that the baby born to Mary would one day subject himself to a public humiliation. The maker of man would suffer at the hands of men. The thrice holy God would be made the object of scorn by sinners. False accusation, mockery, mistreatment, scourging. This is the most shocking expression of humility that as Philippians 2 says, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus embraced the unthinkable shame of the cross. A shame that at one level consisted of public scorn and rejection as he was hung naked and on the cross and made a spectacle for all passers-by. But the shame runs much deeper than that, even more striking than his physical suffering and the emotional suffering as he was abandoned by his friends and put to death by his enemies. Consider his spiritual suffering, that Jesus humbled himself and willingly subjected himself to the wrath of the Father. He became poor. He gave up the smile and the approval of his father to willingly suffer condemnation. Jesus on the cross was treated as if he was personally guilty of every sin that we have ever committed. Jesus was treated by God the Father as if he had disobeyed his parents. Jesus was treated on the cross as if he had lied, as if he had cheated, as if he had stolen. 
Jesus was treated as if he was jealous of his friends, as if he was a gossip, treated as if he had slandered others with his words. Jesus was treated by God the Father on the cross as if he was selfish, as if Jesus harbored resentment in his heart, as if he was unforgiving and held grudges against others. Jesus was treated as if he had worshipped idols, as if he had offered profane sacrifices, treated as if he had mocked the truth, as if he had blasphemed God's name. Jesus was treated as if he had harbored perverted thoughts, secret sins done in the dark, as if he were a homosexual, as if he had looked at pornography, as if he had committed adultery, as if he had looked lustfully at someone on the street. Jesus was treated on the cross as if he had made the decision to get an abortion as if he had abandoned his spouse and his children. Jesus was treated as if he was an abuser, as if he was a murderer, as if he loved money more than God, as if he had neglected his family for work, as if he were a child-centered parent who was passive, as if he trusted the world's wisdom more than God's word. Jesus was treated as if he was a hypocrite who did one thing, said one thing and did another. He was treated as if he broke his promises, as if he was lazy and a drunk and a glutton and an addict. Jesus was treated as if he neglected to pray, as if he hated others, as if he was angry, as if he was a narcissist, a manipulator. He was treated as if he didn't love his neighbor, as if he had taken bribes. Jesus was treated as if he was an unsubmissive wife or a domineering, harsh husband. And we could go on and on and on and tack every one of our personal sins into that list. Jesus was treated on the cross as if he were personally guilty of all of our sins. We know the shame of sin, don't we? We know what it feels like to know that we are guilty and unclean before God. Just dealing with our own sin can be almost too painful to bear. But Jesus took all the sin, all the guilt, all the shame, all the judgment for all the sin of every person who would ever believe on him. Every soul destined for heaven, Jesus traded places with us. He took on flesh as a baby so that he could take our place at the cross. And this is what Paul has in mind when he writes, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. He poured himself out for us, taking on flesh and taking on sin at the cross. So consider the baby in the manger at Christmas, but also consider the man on the cross. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and his grace is displayed towards us with a stunning humility that he would lower himself and subject himself to such deep levels. Grace is displayed in shocking humility, but secondly, this grace is also displayed in sacrificial love. Again, look at the text. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, look at these next few words. Yet 
for your sake he became poor. I think one of the deepest and most desperate questions in the human heart is, does God really love me? Does God really love me? We, we wonder about this when we feel forgotten. We wonder about this when we face suffering and loss. And we grapple with this when we consider the reality of our own sin. How could God love me? Or maybe we look at our circumstances and say, it doesn't really seem like God loves me. It doesn't feel like God loves me because of these deep and painful things that I'm facing. But listen, the measure of God's love for us is not our own, our own understanding. The measure of God's love for us is not our feelings. The measure of God's love for us is what he has done through Christ. Jesus became poor for your sake. He did this for you. He set aside his glory for your sake. He took on flesh for your sake. He was born in Bethlehem for your sake. He lived a perfect life for your sake. He suffered at the hands of sinful men for your sake. He atoned for sin on the cross, dying for your sake. This is the ultimate display of sacrificial love that at the greatest personal cost, Jesus secured eternal blessings for people that he loved. The grace of Christ is expressed in this sacrificial love. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 famously says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. There's not a greater sacrifice you can make than to die for someone. So this brings up a question, I think, for some of us perhaps. And even if it doesn't bring this question up, I'd like you to ask it anyway. I think we should think about this. Does this mean that our benefit is the ultimate goal of Christ's coming? Jesus, for our sake, became poor. Does that mean that we are the ultimate goal? Is our joy the end toward which Christ sacrifices himself? Are we at the center of God's heart and his purposes? Passages like this one highlight God's love for us, that he did this for our sake. But there are other texts we need to keep in view as well. There's a bigger picture. There's more that can be said. Scripture clearly teaches that God does all things for the sake of his own glory. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Forgiveness, atonement, cleansing of sin, God says he does this for his own sake. Psalm 25, verse seven, the, the psalmist prays, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. The psalmist appeals to God's concern 
for his own faithfulness to himself. Ephesians chapter 1, three times, gives us this refrain that God's sovereign act of saving sinners and redeeming them is done to the praise of his glorious grace. So God does not save us for our sake alone. But God pours out his grace through Christ in such a way that not only are we saved, not only are we rescued and blessed, but he does it in a way that in addition to that, his grace is magnified, his name is exalted, his wisdom is marveled at, his power in redemption is made famous, his faithfulness is celebrated so that his glory is worshiped. Jesus saves us ultimately for his own glory. Now some will hear this emphasis on God seeking his own glory and and feel that somehow this diminishes his love for us. But listen, we need not put these two truths in tension. Look at the cradle and look at the cross. See the one who now sits on a throne of glory but has scars of love on his hands. Consider that he could have sought his own glory another way, yet he chose to glorify himself by saving you because he loves you. It pleased God, it pleased him to show genuine, personal, sacrificial love for us. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, that he became poor for our sake. And in this way, in demonstrating love for us in this way, he maximizes his glory. So grace is displayed in shocking humility. Grace is displayed in this sacrificial love. And then third, grace is displayed in stunning generosity. Stunning generosity. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So that you might become rich. Once again, we need to make clear this is obviously not material riches. God doesn't promise that we'll all have lots of money, that we'll all be successful here in this world. The abundance that Paul has in mind, the riches, the wealth that Paul has in mind here, Again, has nothing to do with money. He, he's speaking about spiritual realities. And this wealth that we have is parallel to the wealth that Christ had in eternity past. He's talking about spiritual riches. Apart from Christ, you and I and every lost person in the world are spiritually destitute. We're not just broke, we're in debt, hopelessly in debt. Apart from Christ, we are lacking spiritual life. We are poor. Apart from Christ, we are full of darkness and there is no light in us at all. That's poor. Apart from Christ, we possess no freedom. We're enslaved to sin. That's poor. Apart from Christ, we are lacking spiritual power. We are empty of the Holy Spirit. That's poor. Apart from Christ, we are devoid of righteousness. We have nothing good to show God that would in any way earn his approval or acceptance. Our best efforts are only filthy rags. We are poor. 
Apart from Christ, we have no access to God. We are estranged from him. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. Our future is only judgment. That is poor. But all of this changes because of Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is stunning generosity that Jesus, having everything, would desire to give us, who had nothing, everything that was his. The spiritually destitute are made rich in Christ. We have every need met. We have every lack filled. We have every blessing provided. And it is all through the work of Jesus Christ. You say, in what ways are we made rich through Christ? Well, first of all, we are given spiritual riches now. Right now, if you know Christ, right now, if you've repented of sin and trusted in the gospel, you are rich. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Not riches that you will get someday. These are riches that have been, past tense, lavished upon you. We have spiritual riches now through Christ. We have redemption. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have the grace of God. We have his divine favor, this undeserved blessing. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have spiritual riches now, but there's more. We are rich in the sense of having spiritual riches now, but we're also rich in that we have a coming future inheritance. And this is beautiful. Jesus became temporarily poor so that we might become eternally rich. The inheritance is given to us because we've been adopted into the family of God. That's what an inheritance is. An inheritance is something you get from your dad. <laughs> inheritance is something that has been earned and stored up that at a certain point in time is transferred to you and you get it all. And we are given an inheritance because we've been adopted into the family of God and made heirs. We've been added to the will. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, Jesus came so that you and I could be adopted, so that we could be brought into the family of God. And Paul continues on in verse 7 of Galatians 4, And if a son, then an heir through God. God isn't the kind of father who gives an inheritance to some of his kids and cuts other ones out. If you are a son, then you are an heir. If you are a daughter, you are an heir. There is a promised future inheritance coming. Ephesians chapter 1, once again, in verse 11, says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13 says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it 
to the praise of his glory. Paul speaks of this inheritance in a future tense. We have spiritual blessings now, and we have a future inheritance that is coming. 1 Peter 1.3 speaks of this inheritance as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This isn't like an earthly inheritance that can perish. If the stock market crashes, some of you kids aren't getting very much money, just so you know. Your inheritance here is vulnerable. Some of you who are maybe nearing retirement age are expecting that as your elderly parents pass on, perhaps they will have something that will help you with sort of your end of life planning. But that could all go away. Some of you in here would say, man, I don't even have any hopes of an earthly inheritance. I don't know where my dad's at. Or maybe your parents have nothing to offer. They've cut you out of their life. Listen, we have a future inheritance coming in glory when Christ returns that is far better than any earthly human inheritance. We will receive the kingdom. We who are believers will receive an eternal reward We will inherit the earth. So our riches are a current spiritual reality. It is a coming future inheritance. But there's even more to this rich inheritance that we've been given. There's more to this wealth that we have through Christ. Ultimately, we are made rich. And here's the best part of all. Because Christ gives us not just spiritual blessings, not just a future inheritance, but Christ gives us himself. He gives us himself. If you have Christ, you are eternally rich. In 2 Peter 1.4, says, He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So think about this. The the wealth and the riches of Christ has everything to do with, with who he is, with his glory, with his position of authority with his perfections. And through the grace of the gospel, because of the cross, we are made partakers of that divine nature. We get Jesus himself. He is the gift. John 14, 19 says, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. It is this union with Christ that is given to us by his grace that makes us eternally rich. That's better than winning the lottery. That's better than having a fleet of Teslas. That's better than owning companies and stock. That's better than sitting on the throne of any kingdom in this world. To have Jesus. That's everything. There's no greater treasure. That's the pearl of greatest price. That's the treasure hidden in a field that when you figure out that there's a treasure in that field, you sell everything you have so that you can go buy that field. Paul said everything else is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Listen, Jesus came, he emptied himself, he became poor, ultimately so that we could know him. 
and so that we could be known by him, so that we could become partakers of the divine nature, so that he could dwell in us. Having Christ, we are incalculably rich. Because of Jesus, everything has changed for us. We've gone from poor to rich. We've traded our shame for glory. We've traded our guilt for righteousness. We've traded death for eternal life. We've traded our despair for hope. We've traded our status of of being enemies of God for a new status, sons and daughters, heirs with Christ. An inheritance is on the way. No wonder Paul concludes this section with this profound exclamation if you turn the page and look at the end of chapter 9. Paul says this, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Do you? Do you know it in the sense of understanding the gospel that the Son of God humbled himself and became a man to die on the cross in your place? That he rose again to secure eternal life for you? Do you know that story? Do you understand what this is all about? But even more than that, do you know this experientially? Do you know it firsthand? Because you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Because you've gone from poor to rich. If this is new to you, then I'm here to share good news. That even though you are poor, in every spiritual sense of the word, through Jesus Christ, you can be made rich. You can be forgiven. You can be granted life. You can be granted all the spiritual blessings that Jesus gives. You can be guaranteed a future inheritance. And most importantly, you can know Christ himself. That's good news. It's good news that needs to be rehearsed and remembered and proclaimed. And I'm here to proclaim it to you. If this is new for you, then I urge you today to come and receive the grace of God in Christ. Confess your sin, admit your need, come and and acknowledge, Lord, I am bankrupt, I am destitute, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer you. And what I need is not for you to fix my situation. What I need is not for you to sort of give me stuff. What I need is you. What I need is the life that only you can provide. You come with empty hands, confess your sin, and receive the grace of Christ. If you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's familiar to you, then I hope that this morning has put you in remembrance, that you would remember today your spiritual riches, that you would remember your coming inheritance, and that you would treasure Christ. And that as you treasure Christ, that would show up in your life, that you would be content with what you may have or not have in this life. That you would be generous with what you own. That you would be joyful and grateful, saying with Paul, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. So that other people look at you and they get the message that no matter what we may have or not have, no matter what we gain or lose in this world, we are eternally rich because Christ is ours. His grace is ours. So this Christmas, may we echo these words of praise, this rehearsal of good news of the gospel that We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sake, he became poor. So that we, through his poverty, might become rich. 
Jesus, thank you for all that you have done for us. You humbled yourself. You loved us sacrificially. And you demonstrated this amazing generosity in giving us such a gift. It's a gift. Grace is a gift. It's a gift that we need. It's a gift we could never earn or deserve. But it's a gift that has been richly provided for us. Lord Jesus, we worship you today and pray that you would receive all the glory as we celebrate Christmas this year. As we give and receive gifts, as we get together with family, as we eat food, as we maybe take some time off work. I pray that all the noise and the busyness of this season wouldn't drown out this indescribable gift. Receive all the glory that you deserve through us this season. Amen.